Hello, all you beautiful people. The Daily Tech News Show is brought to you by you. You can find out more at that dailytechnewsshow.com. And we thank you for your support. This is the Daily Tech News Show for Friday, June 29th, 2018. From DTNS in Los Angeles, I'm Tom Merritt. And from Studio Feline, I'm Sarah Lane. We are doing our roundtable episode. Oh my gosh, Shannon, I'm sorry. I stepped all over you. (laughs) I'm so used to doing my own little introduction. (laughs) No, you should. Yes, that's the way it's supposed to go. Okay, in that case... And from Studio Hack 5, I'm Shannon Morse. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, apologies for that. Joining us today for our Roundtable show also is Trisha Hirschberger, host and producer of all the things you ever loved on the internet. <laughs> I love that. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me. This is really exciting. Yeah, very excited. We're going to talk about uh, privacy and GDPR for small businesses. We're going to talk about what's working in TV as Verizon sunsets go 90. Talk about electric scooters, the rise of online multiplayer versus single player. But if you don't understand what all of this is about, our roundtable show is one we do once a month where we expand the regular show into this full-fledged roundtable discussion. We do a full hour with Sarah, myself, and our guests. And while all of our topics cover news of the day, we are going to start with a few tech things you should know. According to a Microsoft internal document obtained by The Verge, the company's upcoming Surface device, codenamed Andromeda, and in the works for about two years now, will include a dual display design and have a pocketable form factor. Microsoft is said to be planning to release Andromeda this year with similar devices from some of Microsoft's top OEMs to follow afterwards. Mm, Pocketable. That's it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, TechCrunch reports Apple is rebuilding its Maps app data from scratch. Company plans to introduce the overhaul data over the next year, with the first batch rolling out over the next few weeks in the Bay Area. Apple will now rely on its own data, either collected by vans that it rolls around or from your iPhone. Instagram will now let users add music to their stories on Android and iOS in Australia, New Zealand, France, Germany, Sweden, the UK, and the US. Users can choose the song after they shoot the video on iOS before, with that feature coming to Android soon, iOS first. The feature is made possible by parent company Facebook's licensing deal that we talked about recently with major music labels. Instagram also announced that Stories has 400 million daily users. Kotaku cites five unnamed sources who say Google's planning to start a streaming gaming platform, not just the service, but the hardware to go with it. Google has been courting big game developers, supposedly, to support the new platform. Kotaku bolsters earlier reports from the information about so-called Project Yeti. That's what the information said this project was called. And uh, Google supposedly met with game developers at both E3 and GDC. Qualcomm announced the QCC3026 Bluetooth system on a chip to let developers create wireless earbuds quickly. Its pricing will be low enough to allow wireless headphones to be bundled with phones in the box. Qualcomm also says the system uses 50% less power over the previous generation. Oppo announced it will use the chip in headphones it sells and will bundle them in some Find X phones. QCC3026, just snappy name. Mm, It really is. Where they come up with those names. All right. Let's move on to our first discussion topic, Sarah. First discussion topic comes from Trisha. So Trisha, as 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 the gaming expert of the group, uh, today at least, you know, we'll just go ahead and call you that. Sure. Um, The idea that there is this uh, move to multiplayer gaming, even though some people prefer a very personal experience. And a lot of game developers are talking about this as well as 
well, whether or not you want to create a, 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 a single player experience game, the, 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 the trend is going in, in, in the direction of kind of having to create these multiplayer experiences. What are your thoughts on not only the trend, what people want and, and, and how game developers can continue to make the games that they want to make? Yeah, I think the hard thing is right now that a lot of the big numbers that everyone's boasting in the gaming industry are primarily online multiplayer games because they can be monetized over such a longer period of time. Instead of having the hit game with the awesome story that everyone kind of finishes once and then maybe is done and finding creative ways to have a single player experience that has replayability, if you've got an online multiplayer experience that you can then further monetize with microtransactions, loot boxes, etc., those game companies are just raking in the dough. So even game devs that want to make really awesome single-player experiences are feeling like maybe that's not where the industry's headed. And then we're seeing this outcry from gamers who are maybe a little bit more introverted or for whatever reason don't prefer an online multiplayer experience, just wanting to kind of have that escapism and play for themselves are feeling like, well, is there nothing made for me anymore? And we saw this really at this past year's E3 uh, just a couple weeks ago. The Last of Us 2 was a beautiful single-player journey. We're all super excited. Um, but then we saw the Fallout series, which was traditional, so traditionally a single-player experience, go to Fallout 76, which is going to be a multiplayer experience now online, which has a lot of people going, really? I don't I'm not sure that's what I wanted. Um, and uh, a Bioware, you know, that's known for Mass Effect and a great single player experiences, again, going with the online anthem. And uh, it's similar to me, I feel like, from the outcry and somewhat cyclical thing that we saw with local co-op, where all of the multiplayer used to be local because we simply didn't have the technology to have online multiplayer. And then uh, we got the technology to have online multiplayer. And then we saw no local co-op anymore. There was this outcry for more local co-op. And now we see on the indie scene specifically more local co-op coming up. So I'm hoping that much in the same way we've seen with couch or local co-op, we'll kind of see a return to single player experiences. Not that it's fully gone yet. I don't I don't want to say that. I, I, you can probably tell my bias is that I really like single player experiences. So um, I'm really excited for Life is Strange 2. And, you know, I'm in it for the high emotional stakes, the beautiful story. I mean, I want to walk away from a great game feeling like I just saw, you know, the best film of the year, except for it was even more impactful because I was part of it. But that's the type of gamer I am. I, I don't know. How do you guys feel about this? Yeah. As, a, as somebody who played World of Warcraft as if it was single player and got <laughs> really uh, got many of my friends upset because they're like, why aren't you responding to chats? And I was like, oh, I wasn't even looking at I didn't know who people were talking to me. Uh, I definitely like that single player experience. And I feel like ga- the gaming industry is like anything else. It goes it goes through trends. And when something catches on, like, oh, I don't know, Fortnite or PUBG, suddenly everybody Everybody goes and does that thing for a while. So I wouldn't give up on single player either. And, and you mentioned The Last of Us sort of as, you know, one of the banner holders that says, hey, this can still be really good. Uh, I, I do think that there's some interesting things going on that you don't hear enough people acknowledge, like Telltale Games, which is on rails. It's it's not as, as much of a it's more story than game, but it's showing that like, hey, people do like episodic 
video games that are single player that tell a great story. And hopefully that will start to allow people to move, you know, maybe take some of the magic of Telltale and put it into a, a little bit of a wider world and realize, oh, we can put things out in chapters. And the people who really like the single game player experience can still spend a lot of money with us because they'll keep wanting to play those chapters. It doesn't always have to be multiplayer. Right. There's an LA Times article uh, in this discussion that I read this morning that, that made a few good points because I think it's easy to say like, well, you know, it's like an extrovert introvert thing. You know, some people don't want to be social and some people do. But if you equate it or at least compare it to something like reading a really good book, there's some there is an escapism uh, f- fact of that that will appeal to some people and not to others where the idea of watching a television series or a movie alone silently rather than discussing it with somebody or having a bunch of people in the same room that makes a lot of sense to me and it also means that this gaming experience is like you don't really have to choose one or the other they're completely different mm-hmm. I, I i will jump in that um and i much, much prefer single player over multiplayer just because I've had so many bad multiplayer uh, experiences. Um, but part of it is money. Like to do like any of the Naughty Dog games, super, super engaging, super uh, scripted, also super expensive to produce. You got not only do you have to come up with the art assets and, and, and the coding, but you also have to get the voice actors. You got someone to write all the, the material. And so for, for some publishers, they, it's, it's a, it's kind of a weighted thing. It's like, yeah, you know, we could do multiplayer. We could skip a lot of the story narratives, but we could also skip a lot of the overhead that we would, we would require in order to produce that style of game. We go with multiplayer. We drop in loot boxes. You know, we charge a nickel here and there for, for, for various, you know, add ons and stuff. Um, and we can make a good, if you know, a decent, if not amazing, living, you know, off of that. And so I think that's kind of the mindset right now because, as I mean, Trisha, you know, this like AAA titles have gotten to the point of, you know, blockbuster movies where it's just, you know, impact, 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 eye candy, but it also costs incredible sums of money to produce. And a lot of publishers like we can't always, you know, put that amount of cash into developing a game, especially if it's not a franchise, if it's not a Call of Duty, if it's not a Halo, if it's not a Mario, if it's not a Zelda, you know, you know, you don't have this thing to hit you to and you're risking a lot of money doing that. So then are you kind of equating the uh, the multiplayer experience right now to like reality TV, Roger? (laughs) Maybe not reality TV, but uh, I would say something that maybe has a, a, a a better like initial uh, return on not initial, but a long-term return on money. It's kind of like those, I don't want to say asylum movies because that's a really bad way to, but, well, I, I think reality but, TV is a, is a good analog for what you're saying, Roger, because it's low budget, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and, and high return. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, you get a lot of them and like what you were saying, Tom, I think it is a trend. I mean, after a while people are like, you know, I kind of sick of seeing the same formatted show. I like Netflix. They spend a lot of money, but it's well-scripted, episodic, serialized shows. Um, and we might see kind of a nice hybrid like uh, um, Life is Strange or any of the Telltale games, like the Batman game, which is actually a lot more engaging than I thought it would be. <laughs> um, 
but like where, where there's a happy medium because you know different you know different strokes for different folks mm-hmm. i've had a similar experience with multiplayer games as you have roger where i kind of don't play multiplayer anymore online because i had bad experiences with it in the past and for me it was it all came down to like harassment so and and video games for me has always been that escape that hobby that i can do by myself that just gets my brain rolling that's really exciting and and enjoyable and when i'm doing that i don't want to get attacked or anything and i don't know if that's still an issue with multiplayer games since i haven't been playing any lately but i i generally focus on single player games and that's just a preference on my own part. So I really do hope that it is cyclical and that we do end up having a lot more single player games making a comeback because right now it just seems like everything that I'm seeing on Twitch is a multiplayer game and everything that I'm seeing my friends play are multiplayer and I just don't feel like I can really get into it with them. And yeah, it's kind of odd that we have a whole panel of pro single player games people. <laughs> That's kind of funny. That was not by I, intention. Now, yeah. I, yeah, I feel like now I need to champion multiplayer a little bit. Multiplayer has its place too. It's well, humor. It definitely it's does. chaotic. It's good. And, and I will <laughs> say my favorite multiplayer game still has to be the Left 4 Dead series because it is incredibly well like <laughs> It's not a it's it's not an on rail shooter, but it is technically on rails, right? Because you move from point A to point B to point C to point D and finish the game. The great thing is it's kind of like when you do the car share carpool in the Bay Area, where you pick up riders so you can use the HOV lane and don't have to pay toll across the bridge. And then once you get to the other side, everyone gets to where they do. You get out of the car. There's no talking. There's no <laughs> chit chat. There's no like, oh, what'd you do over the weekend? You just shut up, <laughs> get in the car, you get your ride, you get across, and you're done. And the great thing about Left 4 Dead was there wasn't a lot of talking. And if you were being a real jerk, the other three people would kick you out of the game, right? Because the whole point of the, the game is, you know, zombies are attacking, you're four survivors, and you need to get to the safe house to make it to the next level. That's the only thing. And I think part of the... The trend with multiplayer is that um, there's there seems to be a desire to build a community out of it, and for things like WoW, that's um, that's great. Not all games need a community of that level, right? I just want to kill like thirty minutes or an hour, and then I have to get back to work or babysitting or doing something else. Um, and multiplayer sometimes can take a big chunk of your life. I mean, as any mm. wild player can attest to, it, it is a big significant investment of your personal life. And, you know, as you get older and you get busy and you got a lot more responsibilities, you, the single player aspect is great. Made it to the save point, stop the game, turn off the TV and go do something else. Mm-hmm. I mean, whatever happened to the option of a game and, you know, maybe I'm naive because I'm a little out of the loop on what's cool these days, but something that could be a single player or multiplayer experience, depending on what you wanted. Well, oh, that's the play yeah. against computers for a lot of the games that are available online. So you don't necessarily still have to play multiplayer for them. Well, and, and the other thing is a lot of single player games have a multiplayer aspect. And sometimes that gets criticized yeah. because it's thrown in there and it's not as well designed as the single player game. What's right. happening, I guess though, my question is, is there a good example of something that does both well? Do developers have the, you know, anybody working for, you know, any game developer, do they have... Um, the the freedom to do something like that. Like 
Rocket League does that where you mm. can just play against computers. So you don't necessarily have to play against a bunch of people. Fortnite is putting in the playground uh, or bringing back the playground. It was so popular it, it crashed. But uh, the playground allows you to just kind of tool around without the pressure of the massive area. It's still technically multiplayer because I think you can go in with up to three other friends. Uh, but it's not. It's not that massive multiplayer uh, battleground system. So, I, I mean, I, th- I think the real point here is there are multiple types of games that involve multiple types of players. There's single player. It's just me in the game and that's it. Uh, and then there's single player, but I could also play it with others if I want and, and have a couple people or I can play it alone. Uh, you know, Overwatch even has a, a mode where you can just go in and play against AIs and with AIs if you just want to practice. So that, that stuff exists. And then there's multiplayers that don't involve building a community. There's multiplayers that don't involve even teaming up. You know, is a weird example, but Animal Crossing Pocket Camp, you play with other people all the time, but you never talk to them. You just have you just cooperate with them on a couple of very limited things. So there's all levels of of interaction that can be used. It's just one particular type is sort of skewing the curve right now. Is that do you think that's fair to say? Yes. And Tom, to what you're saying about Animal Crossing Pocky Camp, um, that's actually what they say they're trying to do with Fallout 76. That's got everyone a little bit worried because they said, oh, you can still have a single player experience. You're just going to have it in a world that exists with other players. Um, and I think the concern when when games try to do both is that inevitably one will be lacking. And everyone's fear is that it will be that single-player experience that's lacking. If you do try to play a Fallout 76 as a solo player, you may not get the full experience or you might not be able to defeat certain objectives because they're really designed for you to team up. So that's that's where the hesitation is. No one in Animal Crossing can nuke me, as far as I can tell. Yeah, right. Well, and there was confusion about that. Can you nuke your friends in Fallout? Huh? Yeah. I mean, and it's that's another thing with Fallout 76 is we don't quite know all of the details about how it's going to work. So there's a lot of fear of like, what if it works this way? And it's like, well, it might not. So totally. Totally. But yeah, I mean, and we saw that happen with multiple games within the last few years where uh, games like uh, a Halo that were traditionally a single player experience were now we're online and even the tutorial and the single player campaign will still be online. Uh, And I think that's where everyone's kind of afraid that everything's heading because I believe that those single player gamers feel like they missed out on something there. I uh, I actually really enjoy what Forza did several years ago where they, they, I don't think they were the first ones to do it by any stretch, but they put in the ghost car aspect. So you could race against your friends, even if they weren't online, you just kind of saw them and and you could you could rate yourself against them and it was really fun for me because i would play and then someone that just happened to be in my friends list maybe i didn't even know him that well was like hey i was racing you the other day like yeah that this was really interesting and that was a fun way to kind of again take a different take on multiplayer so there's lots of those examples mm-hmm. Yeah, Shadow of Mordor did that really well as well, where you could see if a certain enemy in your game had killed one of your friends in their game, you could get a revenge kill for your friend, even though it was their separate experience. Yeah. Yeah, very, very cool. I I think we're just at peak 
peak massive battleground multiplayer right now and and, yeah. and you know it's a little bit like sequelitis uh where where everybody's doing it and and everybody's freaking out because everybody's doing it not all of them are going to succeed not all of them are going to be good so in a, in a year or two we'll see whatever the next trend is maybe it'll be all be yeah maybe it'll all be animal crossing like games who knows <laughs> all right let's uh move on to shannon's topic uh shannon has gone from hating the electric scooters like Bird and Lime to loving them. If you don't know what this is about, it's not in every city, but if you're in China, you definitely know about it. There's lots of places in Europe, Southeast Asia, and the United States that have these. Uh, they are either sometimes bikes, uh, sometimes scooters, sometimes both, but they're dockless. So the idea is I have an app. I go find a bird scooter that's nearby. I unlock it with the app. I can pay a buck to ride it plus a little bit of money per minute uh, and take it wherever I'm going. It's motorized. So it's a great way to do the last mile, like get me from the train station home maybe or something like that. Uh, and then when I'm done, I log out, lock it up. But I don't have to put it in a place. It's not like a docked bike system. I can just leave it as long as I leave it responsibly, you know, at the side of the road, out of traffic, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, San Francisco and now, and now Los Angeles is considering the same thing, have limited the number of these that can be in the city because they were cluttering up walkways. They were, they were causing problems because there were too many of them. In China, several cities have had the same sort of situation. So Shannon... Walk us through how you went, how you learned to love the electric scooter. <laughs> yeah, so I've gotten to experience them in both San Francisco and Oakland now. So um, I'm putting myself out there as my own guinea pig test to see what makes these work and what makes people hate them so much. So my first experience with them was in San Francisco when I was seeing way too many, it was very cluttered. And one of the problems that you see in San Francisco is there's cars always on the road. It's extremely, extremely clustered. There's tons of traffic and there's a lot of people walking around, lots of pedestrians on the sidewalks. And I was actually hit by one of the scooters as somebody was driving by and they were driving extremely fast, even though there were tons of pedestrians walking around. And at that moment, I had this epiphany where I was like, now I know why people hate these scooters so much. And then they got banned in San Francisco and Lyman Bird decided to take them right across the bay over to Oakland. And luckily I work in Oakland. So at that point I was like, there's not as many pedestrians here. There's not as much traffic. So I'm going to actually try this and see what all the fuss is about. So I tried it out, tried the application and it was actually pretty easy. I was able to go uh, about a mile for $1. And then I understood why people liked them so, so much. In, in a city like Oakland, when you don't have as much traffic and you don't have as many pedestrians on the sidewalks, it's very easy for you to get around and to navigate on one of those scooters without hitting people while you're driving them. And I think that's a really important factor. And just the fact that they were so cheap and they save gas, you know, they're, they're running on electric, they're running on batteries. So you're not, you know, adding to the issues that we have with pollution in the cities or anything like that. Uh, but you're able to get to the place that you need to in a decently fast setting. Uh, I then thought, you know, these are actually pretty useful if people respect them. And the problem that we were noticing with Lime and Bird was that I don't think they respected the city when they brought them into San Francisco. There were no permits involved. There was no discussion. They just brought them into the city and said, let's make, let's make San Francisco the guinea pig. 
And as soon as they did that, of course, everybody was just trying to figure out how to use these things. There was not a lot of education as far as what was going on with them. So obviously, tons of people are going to hate them. And that's why they got banned is because they just they didn't work with the city in the first part to actually come up with a game plan to make these accepted and make them useful. While here in Oakland, I don't know if they've been working with the city, but I think that the population, given that it's a little bit less, it works a lot better for this kind of environment. Uh, so it's been interesting going from one city to the other and trying them out in both cities and seeing what's going on. I'm I'm more understanding. I'm kind of sympathizing with the scooter riders now, as opposed to what we were first experiencing in San Francisco. Well, it's interesting. So in the part of LA I live in, you know, people think of LA as like, oh, it's freeways and traffic and it's crazy. Well, I live in, you know, the beach town part of LA, uh, which actually had bird scooters. Not sure about Lyme. although Birds both started over there, actually. Yeah, exactly. And, and the thing about Venice is that it's literally a beach town, even though it's obviously in LA, to the point where we're very used to people on bicycles, people on skateboards. So the idea of someone being on a scooter doesn't really change as anybody who drives a car around this area. And there are plenty of cars. The, the form factor is not actually the issue, but they honestly cropped out of nowhere to the point where I like to think of myself as, you know, I know, I know what's going on, you know, the new startups and everything. It was like, what are all these scooters outside my apartment building? And why are half of them on the ground? And you know, where are they all coming from? And for a like while, a Hitchcock was- movie. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and really, it was like all of a sudden they came out of nowhere and people were saying, these are so great. Um, and I actually rode my first uh, the other day. It, it had taken me a while, but I needed to get somewhere a little bit quicker than I could jog. Um, I didn't want to drive and it worked really well. What I see is, and again, this is just because, you know, I have anxiety about anything being dangerous is I see people piling on the same scooter. You know, for example, you know, a, 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 an adult and someone who's clearly under the um, required age to be on the scooter. Mm-hmm. Okay. So oh. that, and yeah, so you see that around and it's going to happen and that sort of thing. And, and okay, you know, hang on, hope the best. But what happens when there's an accident and something happens and then the person on the scooter is somehow blamed because they weren't following the rules? Mm-hmm. Because really, you know, if, if it's a bird scooter or any scooter, really, because they all have pretty much the same design versus a car, somebody's going to get hurt. And then what do we do? Right. And you are required to wear a helmet when you uh, take these scooters. And I have never once seen <laughs> one person wear a helmet. I don't care if they're I mean, they're I'm sure Sarah or... and Shannon do. But yes, I'd never seen anyone else. <laughs> I, I don't even own a helmet. So. <laughs> I own a helmet. Whether or not I remember to ride it on my scooter or when I'm using one of these scooters is another story. And and that's something, too, is uh, rider education. And I think there needs to be more work as far as educating users as about how you're supposed to ride these things, where you're supposed to ride them, what the proper protocol is. And maybe there needs to be some some laws in the cities that they're used in to make sure that Riders are actually wearing helmets, you know, if they could get ticketed, if they don't, like you can get ticketed in certain cities if you don't wear a helmet and you're riding a bicycle. And I feel like given that these go really fast, they go like 20 miles per hour. They're very, very fast little machines. I feel like that should be pretty standard across any city that they're available in. 
Yeah, it's fascinating. I love the green aspect of this. I love the tech aspect of this. That you know we're we're solving our transportation issues in a uh, in a newer, you know, more hip way, if you will. Um, but it it opens such a can of worms mm-hmm. when it comes to everything else. How do you police user behavior? I mean, yeah. is it up to then the company to impose a fine if the scooter is parked improperly in a hazardous area and gets impounded? Does that cost get passed on to the user? Is there something where, you know, if they are found not wearing a helmet or having two people on a scooter uh, that they would be fined? And is that something that then the law, the local law enforcement would have to police or is that something that the company would police its users on or like you mentioned Shannon the whole idea of education whose responsibility is that Um, I I think that what the various cities that this has uh, that have adopted a pilot program where they're only allowing so many scooters I think that's a really really smart move so that they can fully understand what a lot of these main pain points are going to be and find a way to attack them. And and that is something that San Francisco has been doing. They've they've decided to introduce a permit uh, restriction on these different scooter manufacturers mm-hmm. and brands in the city limits, and they're only allowing, I believe, ten to twelve different ones to um, uh, put in permits, and then they'll only accept a certain amount of those brands to be allowed in the city uh, itself. And Lime has been quoted as saying they've only uh, seen about one percent of the amount of scooters be lost, stolen, have uh, been destroyed or whatever it might be. But I haven't really seen any of them uh, reach out or talk publicly about what they do whenever uh, something happens to a writer or somebody ha- something mm-hmm. happens to somebody else that's around that environment, like if they get hit or anything like that. So as far as like, you know, your concerns, medicals and things like that might put you in a hospital, we haven't really seen them say anything as far as like who would be at fault. Yeah, I'm looking through the Bird app right now, and they have uh, several how to ride segments about you have to have a driver's license. You have to be 18 years old. Here's where you can ride them. Here are the the rules for your local municipality. They do a pretty good job of making that information available. They have a separate section on safety, uh, particularly about helmets and speed and all of that. But Here's the, I can't find a terms of service. There it is, finally. Okay, I found it. To figure out, like, okay, so when I don't do those things, what mm-hmm. happens? Uh, you know, and as far as I know, they indemnify you if you're following the rules. But if you aren't, if you didn't have your driver's license, you didn't have your helmet on, you were going faster than you were supposed to, et cetera, et cetera, then it's all going to be on you, just as it would be if you owned the scooter yourself. So it's, it's all good as long as you don't get caught. Well, as long as you don't break the rules. I mean, I think if you're yeah. following all the rules, you break the rules and something bad happens, the then the they will they will cover you. They will take the liability. But that's the problem. It's like people break the rules all the time. I've never seen anybody wear a helmet whenever they're writing these things. I've Just never like I've never seen I've never seen one person on a helmet. And I mean, yeah. there are boots, bird scooters. I can hear them outside my window <laughs> so right now. Here's the issue, right? Which is it's all over this app that you have to wear a helmet. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's not like they're skirting the issue here Uh, and police can pull you over and say, hey, you should be wearing a helmet. But I see the same thing with personal bicycles has nothing to do with the rental part of this. People ride their own bicycles without helmets all the time. So there's there's kind of a wider sociological issue with this as well. 
they also have this little issue where um, you're not supposed to wear write them on the sidewalks. At least in the city of Oakland, you're not supposed mm-hmm. to. Same here, yeah. Uh, oh. And I see them written on the sidewalks all the time. Now, Lime does also have a good job of introducing you to the concepts when you first open up the app for your first ride, though. So if you just skip right right through that, they don't really warn you any time other than that first time that you open the app, as far as like what the proper protocols are. Um, and, and another issue that I've noticed is just, you know, there will be gangs of people on these scooters all at the same time, and they just don't seem to be respecting their neighbors. And I, I don't know if that's an issue in other cities or if it's just an issue that I've seen in the Bay Area. But um, I feel like the the implementation of the scooters, like how quickly they were introduced into the cities, uh, was seemed kind of inappropriate given that they weren't working with the cities in the first place but i'm really hoping that the permits introduce some some good perception from the public and they also introduce some good laws that you know the riders will be able to deal with and that the the manufacturers will be able to deal with as well i'm sure it depends on the city too and you know where it's being implemented but you know again and where i live it's it's the electric scooter is is has taken over and i was behind i was in my car the other day and i was behind another car and there were you could see scooters just like there were like 30 of them like just piled <laughs> in the car and i was like that woman is stealing all those scooters my friend in the car was like oh no oh, she's, she's charging them she, yeah she's gonna take them back to the mothership you know and you know <laughs> Make it all better. You know, I was like, oh, so that's a job that someone has that I hadn't even thought yeah. about is, you know, collecting the scooters and bringing them back so that they're, you know, they, they're, they're fixed, you know, very Westworld. And there's, like, there's high schoolers making tons of money by collecting these things after their school day gets yeah, over yeah. or school the next day. They make so money, like between I think five to twenty-five dollars for specific brands, uh, depending on where its location was and how hard it was to get to it, and like I guess where you drop it off in the morning. There's a lot of different um, items that go into how much you're paid per scooter, but if you get a whole bunch of them, then you can make bank. That's Maybe crazy. Doing that. That's crazy. Okay, so yeah. I have a question for you guys then. So. Because we're talking about the legality, if a user gets injured and that kind of stuff, would it make you feel more comfortable or less comfortable if it was uh, a scooter, comp- if it was a scooter that was, say, run by an established rideshare company like an Uber or Lyft who well, already Lyft, has some Lyft, of those in Lyft place? Lyft applied for a license in San Francisco. That's a perfect right. example, right? But yeah. that's, I mean, do we think that would be a better implementation since they already have some experience with that kind of stuff? I mean, no better if people aren't wearing helmets and their accidents. I don't think it matters. I, honestly, In fact, I, think- I would even go as far to say is to say that if it were something like Uber um, or Lyft and something bad happened, they would be held more responsible because they've had so much more uh, – you know, supposed experience. The, beside the human behavior aspect, this is not new. People rent cars all the time and mm-hmm. then get in accidents. Uh, so, so, so really, it's it's just because it's it's a different thing. I think people are forgetting. Like, no, we have established law on this. If you're riding a scooter, it doesn't matter whether you rented it or you own it yourself. You're responsible for what happens on it. Uh, and if the company that rented it to you is at fault for something, they're responsible for the machine itself. And and that seems to be, I've, I was looking up a couple of things while we were waiting. That seems to be the applicable law. So the question is, how do you enforce better behavior? That mm-hmm. that seems to be what we're dealing with now. All right, that was the music. So uh, this was a good topic, though. I think it's uh, it's time that uh, we wrap it up there uh, and and just say, 
ride carefully, folks. Yes. <laughs> Put on ride your carefully. Helmet. Yes, yes. Uh, be a defensive driver, uh, defensive rider, defensive scooter. I don't know, whatever, <laughs> One of whatever those. the verb is. Yeah. Uh, let's move on to the idea of video online and what TV means. Uh, the reason that we're we're going to kick off this topic is because uh, news from yesterday that Verizon is shutting down the Go ninety video streaming service. It's been around for about three years. Verizon's Go ninety service will shut down on July thirty first. Uh, it was not necessarily something that I watched very much. Although, full disclosure, I used to work for Verizon. So when Go90 was actually new, I actually technically worked for the company, although I worked for TechCrunch. I was a Verizon employee. Now, it didn't have terrible numbers. Supposedly, at its height, 17 million uh, monthly uniques. That's not terrible, but certainly not really Netflix numbers as well. Uh, and development shifted to Vessel, which Verizon also bought uh, at, at some point. Verizon acquired Vessel, and then uh, Go90 had had some layoffs. This was at uh, the beginning of 2017. Uh, I think it was January, if I remember correctly. And there was a little bit of sort of like, well, how's this going to work? Are they going to merge? So apparently the company says there aren't going to be a lot of significant layoffs on the Go90 team because a lot of them have either been already laid off or absorbed into other efforts. But the question remains, can something like this survive? And I think that it's an interesting topic, especially because so many of the big companies now are launching standalone video streaming services. AT&T has watched TV. Uh, what that was, gosh, what was that two weeks ago now? Yeah, and, just, and it just launched live today. They announced it a couple of weeks ago, and it's now it's now live as of today. Exactly, and the list goes on. So, you know, do we think something like Go ninety was doomed from the start? Was there something that Verizon did wrong specifically, or is it just the fact that there's so much competition that we cannot all survive? I mean, the the, the hints in the name. They made you do something to watch it. You had to go 90. You had to turn your phone. <laughs> and apparently what Snapchat and IGTV, Instagram have learned, you don't need to do that. Just show it vertically. People are apparently fine with that now. And and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm partly joking, but partly I feel like that is that is it. Is people felt like, oh, well, I don't know what this is and I have to, I have to turn it. Uh, whereas Instagram is like, you already use Instagram. You don't have to change how you're using Instagram. Just tap this part of the Explore tab and you get a whole new world of stuff that feels like a more natural proposition. I, I will admit I actually watched Go90. Oh. Okay. Well, the, was there a particular show? I, or? I watched Machinima's Transformer, Power of the Primes, and like their Transformer series because it was the only place they had it. Um, and I will say one of the biggest problems I had with Go90 was there was nothing compelling because although there was some unique stuff, a good chunk of it, at least three quarters to 80% of it was just back catalog of stuff that was stuff you've already seen or maybe would be interested but not super interested. Maybe Babylon 5, but you know Amazon Prime has that too. So it wasn't – there was no standout. There was no House of Cards. There was no – you know, Orange is the New Black. There was not. There was, wasn't the one show that, like, oh, I gotta see it. There was no eye candy to kind of pull you in into that platform, and that's what everyone you see doing, right? You know, you you have to have your at least one ten pole show, if not at least you know, if not a handful, to kind of really get people submitted. I mean, it was the same argument we did with CBS All Access, like the only you know 
attractive, compelling thing was Star Trek Discovery. That was the thing that would make you, you, you pay, you know, at least until the series is over. Uh, but there wasn't enough stuff otherwise to, to convince you to, to pay the monthly, uh, you know, fee to, well, it was to free. continue watching. It was free with ads. Yeah. So you didn't have to pay a monthly fee. And and it turns out the thing that it was used most for, the way they got to that 17 million uniques was sports. Live sports was was kind of the only thing people regularly watched. I I don't they also didn't do a lot of really great advertising for that service that I I can't remember seeing one indelible, you know, go 90 ad in my head. I can well, think it's, of. it's interesting, Roger, the way that you describe Go90 is like, well, you know, there was a reason that I was actually using the service because I wanted to watch this particular series, but most of it was kind of back catalog. Eh, that's exactly what we all said about Netflix way back mm-hmm. when. Um, before Netflix had original content hits, which now Netflix is very much known for, even though there's a big catalog, but it's, you know, things come and go because of licensing deals. Back in the day, I remember... I was one of those people, you know, this is still when it was a DVD service being like, eh, I don't know. I mean, I just don't really, eh. uh, but you know, see, most, this is a- most of that stuff is not really for me. And I think that Netflix is definitely a darling of the industry, but it's not the only company that sort of figured out how to uh, you know, have something beyond that kind of eh, lackluster catalog that lots of other services have. And I don't think Go90 had enough of that to sustain. And I don't know any company that could really compete with that when we have a Netflix or, uh, you know, Amazon, uh, Amazon, uh, original content Prime video is the, the most <laughs> recent Amazon name. I know they yeah. keep changing what I, they call it. Yeah. I was thinking, yeah, like what's transparent under Amazon, you know, Amazon and, and a few others. So I'm not sure how something like this could exist without that breakout hit. And maybe I'm not thinking outside the box enough, but it seems like any service that says, here's our walled garden, please come and watch our video that doesn't have this killer show or movie or that's original that no one else has is doomed. I think, I mean, part of it, like with the Netflix example, originally it was there to disrupt the whole blockbuster home video rental system, right? right. Why get in your car and go down to the blockbuster to rent a movie when you can do it from Netflix, they'll send you three discs you know, up to three days and you return them whenever you want. They, that was their hook. And then when they kind of made the push in online streaming, it, initially it was just a bunch of stuff and Tom's holding up the, uh, this uh, is, this is that shift you're talking about. I have the, the manual for the Roku Netflix player. When they first launched the Netflix streaming service, you could get it on the web or on the Roku Netflix player, and it would allow you to then go and take anything out of your DVD queue that was available for streaming and play it on the Roku Netflix player. Uh, and and that that is when we complained about the back catalog. We're like, I wasn't one of the people saying this, but a lot of people were saying it'll never catch on because they don't have the catalog. Who wants to watch these movies? The best ones are still on DVD. And of course, eventually the catalog get built out. Eventually they started to get TV shows in there as well. And then people started to take stuff away. Stars left. Uh, they lost a few deals with some of the broadcasters and people said, oh, Netflix can't survive streaming now because they're losing all their good stuff. And they started to create original content like House of Cards. And now that is what they're known for. So, I mean, what Verizon did wrong was they thought, well, live sports will get people in. And then we'll strike these deals with people and we'll have things like Babylon 5 in the background and that'll be enough. And they just never had anything beyond the sports 
that would pull people in. And as we know, unless you give them all the sports, which is what cable TV's big advantage is still, people don't come for that. So some people were using it for that, but you're right, Roger. They just didn't have that thing where people are like, oh, you have to get Go90. YouTube Premium, formerly YouTube Red, has the same issue with with only uh, the Cobra Kai series kind of on anybody's mind right now as something like, oh, well, maybe I should get it to watch that. Well, it's interesting because I feel like they are all going with that, hey, we need our standalone original content to stand out. And I say they all meaning YouTube Premium, uh, Go90, any of the subscription VODs that we've seen pop up and fall apart over the last three or four years um, where they, they buy original content. But I feel like a lot of them are buying content that they're buying it from other production companies that have free digital content out there. So this one show may be exclusive to their platform, like Go90. I uh, bought a bunch of shows from like Machinima and Smosh and a bunch of great companies that we love their content. But a lot of their viewers are used to getting for free on one specific platform. So unless they're really particularly drawn in by this one show... I, I feel like the viewer mindset is, well, I can get stuff similar to that on the platform I'm already using. So it's not enough of an impetus to move over there. Um, so how do they get that standalone that everybody's talking about that they have to go to this other platform for? Well, isn't that the question that would make us all rich? <laughs> well, and, and I feel like Verizon thought, well, ours will be free and ad supported. So it'll be like a social network, except it wasn't a social network. Because the other way you get people there is to say, oh, follow all your favorite celebrities and newsmakers, and then we'll also give you this other stuff. You know, Twitter has tried lots of live news and sports, and they still are, but people come to Twitter to see what's being written on Twitter. IGTV is getting so much in interest because Instagram already is a place that people are launching, and so they don't, you don't have to convince them to do something new. Well, then conversely, let's take a look at Facebook Watch, which has been around how long and hasn't taken off at all, even though people are already going to Facebook. Very I don't think point. Facebook's overall numbers are down. But for whatever reason, none of the Facebook Watch programming has been a hit success. And so maybe that just doesn't work, right? Because you think about it. Twitter's hasn't been a success. Facebook's. I mean, it's too early to tell on IGTV, but it may not end up being a success either. One of the arguments I can make is a lot of times whenever I'm being introduced to a new application to watch streaming content is, is that content available on the physical player that I am playing it on? And you held up the Roku manual earlier and I instantly thought like, oh, well, is, is Go90 even available on my Roku? Like that's where I'm usually watching content. I don't necessarily watch content on my phone all the time. A lot of times I would just want to sit in front of my big HD TV and watch Netflix or Hulu on there. And if it's not available on that physical platform that I'm using, whether it's a smart TV or a Roku or app, whatever it might be, I'm not going to go out and spend, you know, $100 plus to buy a new physical box so that I can watch your application. If it's not available, I'm not going to watch it. Well, and their premise was, oh, but the people we're targeting all watch things on their phone or maybe yeah. their tablet. So that's all we need to be at. But it didn't work. <laughs> I feel like that's, yeah, I feel like that's not the case. Like, yeah. yes, there is a huge population of people that watch on their phones, myself included. I never watch Netflix on my phone unless I'm on an airplane. I usually watch YouTube on my phone. I watch Netflix at home. Like, that's pretty much it. Maybe I'm a weird standout character there, but... That, that's what I do whenever I'm watching shows. 
I mean, yeah, I'm I, with you on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm kind of with you too. I'm trying to think like airplane and uh Eileen is watching something different than I am and I'm tired so I want to lay down in bed. That's yeah. that's when yeah. I watch Netflix on a phone. <laughs> that's about it. Yeah. <laughs> Trisha, I think you you absolutely changed my mind on IGTV. I was kind of mildly <laughs> optimistic about it, but now when, now the more I think about it, I'm like, yeah, what is the compelling reason to go in there? Even though it's I'm easy. sorry, <laughs> I didn't mean to dash your hopes and dreams, uh, but yeah, I mean it's it's really interesting to see so many of these digital companies trying to be the next Netflix. But I think that there is a profound difference between digital content that we see on a YouTube or a Facebook watch or a go 90 and digital content that we see on something like Netflix or Amazon prime or Hulu originals in that one has the budget normally of a major blockbuster film or major television show. And the others are trying to have the same success on a more traditionally digital content budget. And I, I don't know that that's fair for those platforms to pit themselves against each other. Yeah. I don't know. The Economist did a, a, a write-up on Netflix in the most recent issue. And one of the things they point out is that uh, Netflix makes more TV shows than any individual TV network. And its production of 80 feature films is larger than any Hollywood studio. Uh, in fact, the increase in its original content budget for 2018 is bigger than HBO's total original content budget. So they wow. are throwing a lot of money at this because they are not just trying to be one channel. They're, they, they have, I can't remember exactly, I think 22, that might even be too low, but they have a number of different profiles that they target based on the viewing patterns that they've seen. This is all about big data, but instead of selling you to someone, they use your viewing data to figure out how to tailor their original programming strategy. If you look at Netflix originals sometimes and go, who would watch that? There is somebody. That's why Netflix <laughs> made it. It's not you this time, but they made Stranger Things for you, and a lot of other people may not like that. Yeah, totally. You know, the funny thing about IGTV, not to, 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 to talk too much about IGTV, although I know it's on a lot of our minds because we're all content producers, is I see more and more uh, people who... <laughs> you can finish your thought. I, but, okay, I'll finish it really quickly. I, I see more and more people who I already follow who do kind of short videos and, and are, are prolific on Instagram and have a lot of followers being like, go over to IGTV to see my other thing. So it's like, I know it's all the same platform, but it does kind of turn into this, like, now I'm going to take you to a new place. Mm. And I'm like, I want to go to a new place. I already like the feed that I'm looking at. <laughs> yeah. So I, like I still I think they have their work cut out for them in that sense. I don't want to move. Mm. Oh. All right. Uh, our last discussion, uh, as with every roundtable, is one that was selected by folks on Patreon who support us at the advisor level. Uh, people uh, can submit ideas and then the advisors vote on them. And Howard Yermish uh, submitted this one and it was voted in by the rest of his advisors. Uh, GDPR and small business and media creators. 
Uh, GDPR, of course, we've covered on the show a lot, but just as a refresher, it's a European law that requires certain things about data management. You have to give people the right uh, to opt out of their data being collected. You have to tell them what data is being collected. And there's a number of other rules regarding that. Also, here in California, they just passed the California Consumer Privacy Act of 2018, which a lot of people are calling the GDPR of California. It requires all businesses to disclose data they collect and give consumers the chance to opt out of it, having it sold. Uh, I think what Howard wants is, hey, okay, we hear how Google is dealing with this. We see all of the emails coming from the big companies telling us, you know, we need your permission to keep collecting your data, et cetera, et cetera. But how about the small businesses? And and us, media creators, how are we dealing with GDPR or do we see any effect on it at all? And so I thought we could just go around the table. I mean, Sarah and I both being on DTNS, our, our, our reactions are probably going to be somewhat similar. But but Shannon, if you don't mind, uh, could we start with you as far as the business, you know, your own YouTube channel and the channels that you're managing at Hack5? Uh, has there been much GDPR effect that you've seen? As far as the media content goes, no. Uh, luckily, we all of the content that we create and that we put out there is made on some kind of third-party platform. So most of the GDPR effects have come down to how those platforms are collecting data, not us, since we are just putting that data out there. And we're not, you know, we don't have a mailing list. I don't, I don't have any kind of personal collection of data except for like uh, whatever's on Patreon. And that's about it. But when it does affect us is when, you know, we're selling items in the hack shop. And uh, I just like lost my little earplug here. But basically, <laughs> like we we sell products in the hack shop all the time and we are collecting data in that sense. And since we are using a platform for our storefront, we have to make sure that that storefront is GDPR compliant or else we would lose all of those sales in the European countries. So luckily, you know, through working that with them for months, unfortunately, poor Darren has been having like to spend hours upon hours just researching and making sure all of this information is working out correctly. Uh, luckily, it sounds like they are compliant and they are within all of the laws and uh, specifications for GDPR in Europe. But unless you are collecting information yourself personally, I don't see how it would affect a YouTuber um, since you're just using the YouTube platform. You know, you're not you're not collecting any addresses or emails or credit card information unless you have your own storefront. Yeah, you're you're assuming that YouTube is is taking care of that for you basically. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Trisha, what about you? Uh, I feel much the same way. I mean, I primarily create content for YouTube and Twitch as platforms. And a lot of times I'm doing that for another production company that's then using YouTube or Twitch. So it's so far removed from my step of the pro for my phase of the process that I don't see a lot of that. And it's funny, I was listening to Shannon talk about things about, you know, like a storefront. And I thought, well, you know, I do sell merchandise, but I sell it through a company. So I would assume the responsibility is on them there. I never see any of the addresses or any of the customer's information personally. So I hope that they're compliant. Um, but yeah, for me personally, there's not much of that, maybe with the exception of people who win any giveaways that I do, or if I send out any uh, items as just rewards, sometimes I do loyalty rewards for people who, you know, hang out in my Twitch chat for long enough, my Twitch viewers collect dragon scales, and then they can trade in dragon scales for cool prizes. And if it's a prize that needs to be snail nailed, 
then I would have their uh, address for that purpose only. Um, but that kind of stuff happens so rarely and is so not a major part of what I do as my business that it doesn't even really affect it. Now, watch, I'm saying that and I'll soon find out that there's some huge thing that impacts me that I haven't even thought of. But those are my initial thoughts. Yeah, that's always my fear in, in, in saying like, I don't think it hurts me at all. And then immediately after the show, I'm like, oh, wait, hold on. I missed something. But right. but yeah, for, for Daily Tech News Show particularly, it does affect us because we have a website dailytechnewsshow.com. And so that website, because it takes comments, collects user data. So we have to have a disclaimer on that page that says, click here, and this will tell you what data is collected. Now, thankfully, Akismet and Automatic uh, provide a really easy way to turn that on. Uh, Akismet is a plugin, if people don't know, that that is anti-spam. And because it works with WordPress, which is owned by Automatic, uh, they're able to, to take you to a WordPress page that says, this is what WordPress does. And this site is doing what WordPress does because it's running WordPress. So this is what you need to know. And it's very limited data that, that you give there. On the other hand, it is something that I had to think about. And I, I had to, you know, I, I was already spending it, so it didn't increase my money, but I had to spend, I have to spend money on an Akismet uh, service uh, to, to be able to, to use that part of the service. I could hard code it myself. But my point is, it does make running something yourself just a little bit more difficult and is going to encourage more people to say, you know what, maybe I won't run my own server. Maybe I'll just go and, and put it on this service. Maybe I'll, I'll use one, you know, Squarespace or something like that. Maybe I, I'll just be on YouTube and Twitch because then they take care of that. And I, I think it is going to have that kind of effect. On the other hand, I don't know how much that effect is really going to be felt because most people are doing that already just because they don't want to deal with the technological aspect of things. But I do wonder if it will have a, be a deterrent on people starting small web presences uh, that they would have built themselves because they don't feel comfortable having their data shared with a larger platform. But at the same time, they don't want to go through the trouble of having to comply with all these laws. It kind of reminds me of the recent story of the Supreme Court saying, yes, states, U.S. states can collect taxes from companies oh, yeah. that are shipping to individual states, right? So if you're, if you're an Amazon or, 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 or an Etsy or, you know, whatever, then, uh, you're established enough where, eh, well, they probably have to change some things, but this isn't going to ruin your business. If you're an independent, uh, uh, producer of, I don't know, makeup brushes, whatever. That's the only thing I have in front of me right now. And you're, you know, you're, you're, you're shipping to a variety of states and you have to think about local state taxes. That might be a deterrent or at least something that you're not able to keep up with. And yeah, you might use a platform where you don't have to think about it. So it kind of reminds me of this in a certain way. And also what happens when you're not complying with data privacy uh, um, laws and you don't do that on purpose. For example, Tom, you mentioned, you know, automatic and whatever the plugin was that was fairly easy for you to implement. But what if you just sort of like didn't know that that was something that you were supposed to do and somebody says, well, hold on, you're actually not complying with the law. It gets kind of tricky. Yeah, exactly. I be Beatmaster in our, our chat room is like, on the other hand, it makes you think about how to use and approach user data, which is not a bad thing, which I think in general, I agree with as a principle, but it didn't change anything for me. 
Uh, I didn't suddenly change the way I think about user data. I wasn't doing anything with this data. I don't intend to do anything with this data. I collect the most limited num- amount of data possible uh, for the comments section. Uh, all it did is make me think, oh, crap, I need to have a link to a policy. How do I go about doing that? Well, even nowadays, like given that there have been so many hacks and so many vulnerabilities and breaches of different companies' user data, it's not just GDPR that affects how people think about how they are collecting data, but it's also how are you going to be perceived if there is a hack? And that might deter some smaller companies from wanting to collect anything in the first place, not even just GDPR. Yeah, sure. No, that's absolutely true. Uh, and, And I think a lot of people may not realize that. Uh, that, that that's part of the deal with the GDPR particularly mm-hmm. is, you know, you have to disclose any any data theft within a certain amount of time. Exactly. Uh, you know, now, again, I'm not running the server out of my house. I'm using a, a hosting provider. And so that hosting provider will help me cover a lot of that side of things uh, because they manage the security of the site. But still, it's it's another thing. I, I think it's more in principle than probably in effect that I think, oh, it's too bad that there is one more hurdle to someone setting up their own thing on the Internet because the original promise of the Internet is anybody in their house can connect to the Internet and get going, right, and and just do everything themselves. Whereas in practice, most people don't do that anymore. And and that's actually one of the reasons we're seeing problems on the Internet is that lack of decentralization. But I don't think this is the thing that solidifies the de- the centralization of the Internet. That was already happening anyway. Sadly. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I hope that answers Howard's uh, questions. Uh, and by all means, Howard or anybody else uh, who has more questions along these lines, please send them to us. Feedback at DailyTechNewsShow.com. We would like to thank our panel, our roundtable panel. We do it once a month. Let's start with you, Trisha Hirschberger. Uh, it's so good to see you. It's been so long since I've personally seen you. So it's great to see you uh, on the show. Let folks know where where you've been at. You know, producing work where they can keep up with it and how they can keep up with everything you're doing from now until eternity. Awesome. Well, first of all, guys, thank you so much for having me on the show. It was so lovely to sit here and chat tech with you guys for the past hour or so. Um, if people want to find me online, they can do that on the social medias at that girl Trish with no I in the girl uh, or on youtube.com slash Trisha Hirschberger or twitch.com or twitch.tv. I'm sorry, slash Trisha Hirschberger. Um, and I try to take the show, the YouTube shows I'm producing for other channels and playlist them on my YouTube channel and the Twitch shows that I'm producing their channels and host them on my Twitch channel. So I like to think those are like the home base hubs for all the stuff that I'm doing. Um, uh, currently, I do a show for Newegg called Newegg Now every Thursday morning at 10 a.m. It's live to YouTube, Facebook, and on the Newegg.com site. And that show is basically just a discussion of some of the uh, the coolest stuff that's new in tech as well as tech deals. So if you're used to shopping at Newegg, whether it's for home entertainment or PC components or mobile or smart home or whatever it is, we usually theme each episode and then have deals on the products that we talk about. So that's really fun. And then I do a show uh, for Kingston Technology called DIY in 5 where I take 
more complex tech topics and break them down for the everyday user so you can have your water cooler conversation and sound like you're very knowledgeable about specific topics. Um, and that's a very quick five minute or less show. And then I also do a video game show for Geek and Sundry called Game Engine every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Uh, live on Twitch, on twitch.tv slash geek and sundry. So I keep busy and then I get to come talk to fun folks like you. So again, thank you guys so much for having me. It was so great to see everybody. Wow. I guess you are busy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, I should probably do more shows. Um, Thank you so much, Trisha. Uh, Thank you so much for being here. It was a true pleasure. Also, thank you to Shannon Morris, who's with us pretty much every Friday, but it was a roundtable day. It was so fun to have Shannon talk a little bit more about electric scooters and all the rest. Shannon, what's been going on with you and how can folks keep up? Thank you, Sarah. It's super fun to talk to y'all every Friday as well. Well, almost every Friday, unless I'm on vacation, which I am going on vacation in three weeks. But um, yeah, I wanted to mention my new YouTube channel that I just started working on. It's a hobbyist channel, and it's all about Sailor Moon. It's called Sailor Snubs, and Snubs is my online screen name, if you didn't know. So it's all about Sailor Moon news and reviews. And now that I have a few videos up there, I'm comfortable publicizing it. So (laughs) I'm kind of getting the word out there and asking people to subscribe if they're into Sailor Moon. So if you didn't know, I'm obsessed and I have like a whole collection room going, which my husband's not too excited about, but I'm having a blast. So. Well, it's not about him, is it? <laughs> That's right. He can just <laughs> deal with it. <laughs> he enjoys seeing all the boxes on the front porch every day, so that's always enjoyable. <laughs> I love seeing the re- reactions whenever I get all this stuff in from Japan. <laughs> but yeah, check it out. It's Sailor Snubs. You can find it on YouTube, youtube.com slash Sailor Snubs. Sounds kawaii. It does. (laughs) Thanks. Uh, Hey, folks, if you'd like these roundtable shows, we'd like to do them more often. Uh, Our next Patreon milestone is just about $2,500 away and would get us up to two roundtable episodes a month. Plus, if you join us on Patreon, you become a member of the wider DTNS community with perks uh, like extended shows, exclusive columns. Roger had a column that went out to the associate producer level earlier this week. There's more like that at patreon.com slash DTNS. And if you have other ideas about what you want us to do or see or hear or, or I don't know, any feedback at all, email. The email still works. Feedback at dailytechnewsshow.com is a great way to get a hold of us. We are also live Monday through Friday at 4.30 p.m. Eastern, 2030 UTC at Alpha Geek Radio, uh, dailytechnewsshow.com slash live. Well, I'll just go ahead and say alphageekradio.com and diamondclub.tv. We have lots of options, all right? We'll be back on Monday with Justin Robert Young. This show is part of the Frog Pants Network. Get more at frogpants.com. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. (laughs) 